Hi, I'm Martin Sweet of The Law TV. Thanks for joining us for today's Legal Web Chat. We're joined for the next half hour by attorney Tim Casserly of the Albany, New York law firm of Burke & Casserly. Tim will be answering your questions about wills, trusts, estates, asset protection, and probate issues. Tim, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Martin. Before we get started with your questions for Tim Casserly, I want to take a minute to explain the format of this legal web chat. We're first going to ask Tim to answer the questions that viewers of WTEN submitted in advance through Albany Law TV. Then we'll open it up to your questions. If you have a question about wills, trusts, estates, asset protection, or probate issues, just send that question to chat at the law TV. That's C-H-A-T at the law, T-H-E-L-A-W dot TV. This legal web chat is for informational purposes only. Legal information is not the same as legal advice, which is the application of law to an individual specific circumstances. None of the information provided in this web chat is legal advice. The Law TV, LLC, and our media partner, Young Broadcasting Incorporated, through its subsidiary, WTEN, do not represent and or endorse the accuracy or reliability of any information provided in this legal web chat. If you need advice about your particular situation or need legal representation, you can call the Burke and Casserly Law Firm at 518-452-1961. Tim, before we start with the WTEN viewer questions submitted through Albany Law TV, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your legal practice? Sure, um, Martin. We we started in the late '80s um, as a law firm, so we've been in business for about 25 years, and for all of that time, we've focused pretty much on working with families in the areas of estate planning, financial planning, estate administration, and the field of law that's sort of become known as elder law over the years. Back when we started, it was working with families whose parents may have early stages of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or debilitating diseases, and we just sort of developed this expertise in this area where we do a lot of planning that's become pretty specific and changes constantly. So most of our practice concentrates in those areas. And as I mentioned, we do some financial planning as well. Um, I myself am a certified financial planner from the College for Financial Planning in Denver. So we incorporate that into a lot of our practice also. And professionally, both myself and all of our firm, we've been involved with professional organizations like the Financial Planning Association. And recently, I've chaired the New York State Bar Association's elder law section, as did my partner, and uh, one of our associates, she's in line to be a chair probably in the next four years. So we do a lot with, not only with clients, but with the professional community doing continuing legal education classes for financial planners and, and lawyers as well in these areas. Fantastic. Thank you, Tim. And as we begin, a special welcome to the WTEN and the Law TV audience. Tim, our first question is from Terry. Terry writes, my spouse and I disagree on whether or not to have a will. Could you tell us what could happen if we don't have one? Well, there's three ways for property that passes to someone else when someone passes away, and it'll be either by title. So for a lot of couples, they have their property in joint name, their house is in both names. Um, it could be by contract, and that might be a life insurance policy or an IRA where you name somebody right on that contract to say, if I pass away, it goes to this person. And the third way is by operation of law, and that's where you run into the problem when you don't have a will. If somebody dies without a will and they own property in their name, 
it's going to pass to what New York State, and I'll give the New York State example, but every state has a similar scheme where they say, here's the people that will get your property. Now, if it's a husband and wife and one spouse dies, the spouse and the kids will split the property. So if the plan is for everything to go to the spouse, well, the children are going to get their share too. So, And there's a family tree, so if you can picture, if there's no spouse or kids, then brothers and sisters, no brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews. So if you can picture the family tree branches going out, eventually someone is going to be on a branch. But what you want to do is have control over who's going to get that property. So a lot of couples will say, I don't really need a will. I don't need to spend money on a will because everything's in joint name. And that works fine when one spouse has passed away, but often the surviving spouse doesn't do a will, then they're given the plan that New York State has for them, which might not be anything like what, what they have. So I'm not sure that's going to solve Terry's argument with her husband, but that is what happens if somebody doesn't have a will. And what are the requirements for writing a will in New York? Can anyone just simply write, some, write down on a piece of paper what they want to happen with their property after they pass, or are there specific requirements for how to write a, a will in New York? Well, there are specific specific requirements. And the other thing that people, I, I think, probably overestimate is the cost. I mean, you could probably get a simple will done for anywhere from four to $600. And when you talk about everything you own going to the people that you love, that's not a lot of money when you figure most people spend more than that for their television. So you can do it yourself, but at the very least, have some attorney take a look at, at what you're going to put together. And to answer your question, though, it has to be typed up. Handwritten wills are not going to be honored. So it has to be typed up. It has to be signed in front of two witnesses. And there's a certain uh, signing ceremony with a couple questions that the attorney is going to have to ask that when you sign in front of those witnesses, you want to do what's called publish the document. You want to say to the witnesses, I just signed my last will and testament, and I'm asking the two of you, and there's got to be two witnesses, to witness that I signed that. Do you agree to do that? So you have to follow very specific formalities to make sure that the will is going to be valid when it's offered for probate. And a lot of people think once they sign the will, it's good to go. But actually, your will can be changed right up till the day you die. It has no effect whatsoever. So sometimes people prepare a will, and I'll get the kids coming in and saying, I'm my parents' executor, and I've got to remind them their parents are still alive. You're not really anything until they die. So you're free to change your mind, too. So for the will, again, it doesn't have any effect until you pass away, but there are very specific requirements. And are there uh, requirements? One of, I've got a question here from Victoria, and let me, I'll read you her question, and I'll maybe ask some, add something to it as well. Victoria writes, I'm a single parent of one child. The father is involved. However, he is not on the birth certificate. If something were to happen to me, would they follow my will, or would he have a chance of um, taking custody of the child? They will follow the will. Let me just back up. In your will, you name a guardian, and there's sort of two parties you want to name when you're leaving money to kids, maybe a trustee or the executor, the person taking care of the money that may go to them. And the other part is the guardian, and that's the person taking care of the person of your child. The court will give great weight to the person you name as the guardian. Now, having said that, they also want to give the parent preferential treatment if they make sense. But no matter what, the test from the court is always what's in the best interest of the child. So what I recommend to couples, much like in Victoria's case, prepare a will because that's going to be evidence that here's the person I want taking care of this child. I've given it a lot of thought, went to a lawyer, prepared a will. So for a lot of reasons, I'm naming this person. 
doesn't mean they're going to necessarily be the one to win guardianship in that case because the father will have rights and they get to say, here's why I think I'm the best person for the child that's in their best interest that I stay with them. But having a will with the guardian is going to give the court a lot of direction on which way to go. And does New York law mandate or require that um, spouses have to be given a share or children have to be given a share? Or if someone dies, can they direct that all of their assets are given to charity or to a non-family member if they so choose? Well, I'll go right through the list. New York, like every other state except I think Louisiana is the only exception to this, you cannot disinherit your spouse. So they're going to be entitled to a third of your estate. If my will says I leave everything to the Red Cross, for example, my spouse can still come forward and do what's called take an elective share. She can elect to take the share that New York State lets her have, and that's a third or at least $50,000. So you can't disinherit your spouse unless they agree to be disinherited, and that happens in a lot of cases, especially with second or third marriages, where they may say, I waive my right of election, I waive the right to take any share of your estate, because I know you want it to go on to your children, perhaps, or to charity. So to answer the first question, you cannot necessarily disinherit your spouse. You can disinherit the children. Just by virtue of being a child doesn't mean you're entitled to anything. So often we'll have people, they'll say, I want to contest my parents' will because they left me out of the will. And often the more you talk to the child, you realize, well, it's probably a good reason why they left you out. But that's besides the point. <laughs> but you don't have to include the children. They can be cut out. They have no right to necessarily receive an inheritance at all. So you're pretty okay. free to leave your property wherever you want. Fantastic. Tim, Emma wants to know, does a will expire? Uh, does it expire? No. What will make it expire is doing a subsequent will. The first line or first paragraph will say, I hereby revoke all prior wills and codicils. It's not until then or that you take some other act to revoke that prior will, like ripping it up or burning it, destroying it somehow. That's the only way it's going to expire. And it creates a problem, maybe like earlier we were saying with the, the earlier couple where they were talking about, do I really need to have a will? Sometimes someone will do one years ago, and then it's never really updated to see how the kids have grown. Maybe now they can take care of money better or charities become more important in your life. Well, that old will is going to control everything. So, no, they don't expire. Okay. Well, here's a, here's a question from Clara. Uh, my elderly mother is moving to Florida from her longtime home in New York. Does she need to redo her will, power of attorney, and health care proxy now that she will be a Florida resident? Uh, yes and no. I recommend when people are making the move to another state to be a resident of that state and not just maybe like a snowbird that comes back and forth to New York because the, the place where what you're called the domiciled, that's where your permanent residence is, that's going to control the documents that you want to have. Now, in other states, if you do a will in that state, it's validly done in that state. So, for example, Clara's mother did a good New York will, moves to Florida. That will is going to be honored. She doesn't need to change the will unless she changes who she wants to give her property to. With regard to the other, what we call advanced directives, the health care proxy, living will, power of attorney, those you do want to do in the other state. In fact, and you may want to do them in both New York and Florida, because if you're going into a Florida bank, for example, they want to see a form that they're familiar with, and that's going to be the Florida power of attorney. When she's back in New York, have the New York form. They can work side by side. Unlike a will, they don't revoke all 
prior ones unless you say that in the power of attorney itself. But I recommend anytime, and we work with a lot of attorneys in Florida, if someone's moving down there, ask to set up a consultation, take a look at your documents and say, do I need to maybe add to these or update any or revoke them? But generally speaking, your will is going to be good in, in every state. And does that also hold true if you move to, say, a community property state? Um, are, there, are there special kinds of states where updating your will or other estate planning documents becomes uh, a bigger issue? Well, every state you go to, I always recommend have it looked at. Now, you may not have to update the, the will itself, but what will, will happen is you bring up a good point in community property states. How that estate gets divided up may be different than what your will says. You want to make sure an attorney in that state takes a look at it and says, yes, even though you're leaving things as follows, California, for example, a community property state or Texas may say, here's what's really going to happen for the spouse where, like I said, before you have that elective share, well, that spouse may be entitled to more than what you left them in the will. So you want to coordinate what that plan is going to be. Fantastic. Uh, Robert says, uh, beyond a will, what else do I need to protect my legal rights and property after I die? Uh, I guess we really just want to focus on the property issue. What, in order to protect your property after you die, what, else, what, else, what other kinds of documents are there uh, and what else people need besides a will? Well, if, uh, if I understand the question correctly, with asset protection, for example, if you leave your property maybe in trust, that's going to protect it from different creditors. If it passes by way of your will, it's handled by the surrogate's court, and that's the place where all creditors can come put their claims to say, Robert left X number of dollars, we have a claim, he owed us this much money when he passed away, so we want the estate to pay these debts, these claims. So any money going through probate, through surrogate's court, that's going to be subject to those claims. What some people will do instead is maybe leave money set up during their lifetime, a trust or joint property or beneficiary designation, where it passes to somebody outside of the probate estate, so your will doesn't control it, then maybe creditors won't get paid from those funds. It depends on the creditor and, and how you sign the documents that signed up for the debt. For example, if you have a mortgage on your house, well, just because I put the house in trust and I left that to someone else by joint title doesn't mean the bank is going to be stiffed from that mortgage. They're still going to get paid. So some parties, they'll have a secured interest, so it might not I'm not sure if I'm answering the question with the protection aspect aspect correctly, but that that would protect it in some from some unsecured creditors, but other ones are always going to get paid off. Thanks. Tim, I just want to pause for one second, remind our listeners that they are listening to today's legal web chat with the Law TV. We're joined by attorney Tim Casserly of the Albany, New York law firm of Burke and Casserly. Tim is answering your questions about wills, trusts, estates, asset protection, and probate issues. This legal web chat is for informational purposes only. Legal information is not the same as legal advice, which is the application of law to an individual specific circumstances. None of the information provided in this web chat is legal advice. The Law TV LLC and our media partner, Young Broadcasting Incorporated, through its subsidiary WTEN, do not represent and or endorse the accuracy or reliability of any information provided in this legal web chat. If you need advice about your particular situation or need legal representation, you can call the Burke and Casserly Law Firm at 518-452-1961. Okay, Tim, just switching gears just a little bit here, I've got a, a question from Jerry. Uh, my husband and I have been married going on 29 years. He is disabled and not in good health. If he were to die, would his first wife, whom he is married to for about four years, be entitled to any of his Social Security? 
will I be able to collect his social security in the event of his death? Um, first off, my, my advice to Jerry would be to go online to the Social Security Administration website, ssa.gov, and they have a great frequently asked question portion of that. And um, so that, that's one place to get that answer. The other is the first wife, I don't think will get any benefits. Um, when somebody's marriage ends in, in divorce, you have to be married 10 years to get benefits based on your other spouse's quarters. And what I mean by that is you have 40 quarters that you work and pay into the Social Security system. And once you have your 40 quarters, then you have your own benefit. So Jerry may get to the point that upon her husband's passing, she may get a benefit based on being a surviving spouse, or she may also have a benefit based on her own working quarters. She's going to get the higher amount. If it's his, it's typically one half of the other spouse's working quarters. And then upon his passing, her benefit will jump up to what his amount is. Now, if the prior spouse should be entitled to any money, and again, I don't think she is because you do need the 10 years of marriage, so that's another just a good marriage tip. If you're nine years into the marriage, maybe hang in for one more and get that spousal benefit, but that's besides the point. But she might be entitled to something out there. That won't diminish Jerry's in any way. The surviving spouse gets the same amount. Okay. Um, you sort of Briefly mentioned before, but I want to uh, go into Iris's question here. Uh, it looks like uh, she's had some experience here. Iris says, what is probate and why does it take so long? Can it be avoided or can it be less expensive? Um, do we have enough time for all of Iris's questions? <laughs> I'll break it down into different parts. Um, probate, probate is the process that validates somebody's will. And think of it as you say, my, my parents named me the executor in their will. Well, the court's going to say, well, we need to know that that's a valid document. Was it signed in front of two witnesses? Were they of sound mind and body? Because before you go signing your parents' name to all of their assets, we want to be sure that you're the person they picked. And we want to be sure, too, that anyone that would have received their estate if they died without a will is okay with that. And that group of people that gets to say they're okay with that is back to what I was talking about the family tree before. It's a spouse and kids. So if there's a spouse and children, they would say, we consent to the will going through probate, and we consent to our mother or father or whomever being the executor. If there's no spouse or kids, then, again, you'd go out further, maybe parents, siblings, nieces, nephews. But for most people, the family tree, you just go out a couple branches to find people who are going to consent to things. The reason probate might take a long time is when you don't have immediate relatives, and now we have to search out and find nieces and nephews or grandkids or people that have to sign off on the will because there's no one on the closest branches to the trunk, the person that passed away, and that creates some delays in probate. Other delays, too, frankly, are you pick a lawyer that doesn't do a lot of work in the trust and estates uh, administration type of area, and it just takes a while to get the paperwork put together and submitted to the court. So sometimes you lose time in that process, too. So it shouldn't take a long period of time, but it is going to take probably five to seven months because that's the period where creditors can come forward and say, I have a claim against the estate, so you have to leave the probate estate open. And the reason, if you're the executor, you want to leave it open is if you hand out all the money and a creditor comes and says, um, I have this credit card bill for $10,000 I need to get paid, and I just paid all my brothers and sisters their money. Now I've got to go back and get the money to pay that. 
if they don't have it, they spent it, they went on vacation, bought a house, whatever, then I got to take it out of my pocket. So sometimes the delay, not necessarily delay, you just want to keep it open to make sure everything is paid up and done. You can avoid probate, I mentioned before, if you have joint property, if you name beneficiaries on things, because probate is only the process for your will to take uh, care of assets. Again, if something is just in your name when you die, your will controls it. If you have a joint holder on it, that person gets it. If you have a bank account that has in trust for, if you have an IRA that has beneficiary for, those are the people who are going to get it, and that's not part of probate. So I hope okay. that did that cover all the steps that she asked in that question. I, I think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> the answer might be longer than probate, but I don't know. <laughs> Michael wants to know, what is a living trust? How does it differ from a will? Do I need one? The living trust, let me stick back with the earlier question with probate. The living trust helps you avoid probate because the living trust is going to be, I'm going to set up a set of rules during my lifetime and think of the trust as another person and I'm going to create this person to receive my property. So if I own a house, I'm going to deed the house to my living trust. Typically it's revocable, meaning it can be changed at any time. So I'm going to put it in the trust name. I'm going to be the trustee. I'm going to be the trust beneficiary. And it's going to say, I'm going to have use of this house or bank accounts or whatever for my lifetime. When I die, my son will become my new trustee, and he's to do the following. And the trust is going to say, much like what your will would say, I want it divided amongst all my kids equally or whatever your plan is. And because you set those things up ahead of time, you don't go through probate. So everything is set up through the trust, and you don't need the court to approve things because, in effect, you did probate during your lifetime. You changed title to all those assets to your trust, and you gave that list of instructions to whoever the trustee is going to be following you. A lot of people don't need a trust because it's often joint property or they have beneficiary designations already in place. So the trust is superfluous, really. You're already going to pass your property. In other cases, too, the trust can be a lot of work because you're going to change all of your accounts if you have a lot of stocks, if you have a lot of real estate. You're going to change all that to the trust name, and a will would do the job just as easily. And what a lot of people say is, well, going through probate, it's a little bit more work, but frankly, I'm not around to have to do it, so I'd rather just leave it to my heirs to do. So in some cases, the trust is a great thing. In others, it's money probably not well spent or Sometimes we advise people hold off on spending the money. Okay. Um, uh, I think it's Vikram. How can people keep their parents' assets safe and protect what their parents earned as they enter a nursing home? I think what Vikram is getting to has to do with, with what are either called capture or spend-down provisions. So you could talk a little bit about uh, nursing home financing and its relationship to um, uh, asset protection. Sure. On the... The asset protection strategies, there's sort of two degrees. One is, and I'll say, healthy-ish parents. And you know, I, people we see are 60, 70, 80, 90. But regardless of the age, are they in decent health? And the, the health would be such that if they gave away any property, could they get past five years and not have to need nursing home care? And that's for the magic time period of 60 months. Because if you go into a nursing home and run out of money, and in New York it's easy because it's a good $10,000 a month at a nursing home, once you go through your own money, Medicaid is the program that pays for nursing home care. And Medicaid's based on financial need. So when you go into Medicaid and say, I'm financially needy, 
they're going to say, well, how did you get there? And you have to show them all your records. So over the last 60 months before that application, did you give your money away at all or spend it? If you gave your money away, there's going to be penalty periods. And that means you're not going to get Medicaid for a certain amount of time. So for the healthy family, we'd say, do we have 60 months in advance to do some planning? If we do, we set up a trust, put money in that trust. So now it's out of the parent's name. They could just receive the dividends, the interest, if it's a home, use of the home or vacation home. They just can't get the principal. Because if they can get the principal, any creditor could as well. So you have to give up some controls if you're going to do that. So that's the case when you have somebody that feels 60 months is very doable. In Bikram's case, or I hope this is not the case, if someone's looking at nursing home very, very soon, probably way beyond a, a simple answer here on the call tonight, but there are ways where you can protect a portion of it where maybe you gift out part and then you set up an annuity or a loan or somehow to pay during the period that there's going to be a penalty for Medicaid eligibility. Like I say, it's a fairly complicated strategy that you put in place, but it can protect about 40% of someone's funds if, if they're needing nursing home care immediately. So, Tim, in, in addition to, to thinking about things like asset protection, what are the other issues that um, the listeners need to think about as their parents are uh, entering this kind of age? Power of attorney uh, for health care, power of attorney for uh, other issues. What kind of things should uh, our, our listeners be thinking about? Well, there are two areas. With the asset protection, number one, take a look at long-term care insurance. Find out if it's viable, if it's affordable. Uh, that, that's the best thing because for a lot of people, they don't want to give up control of their savings or their home or, or assets. So the insurance, that basically will provide a benefit if, God forbid, they need nursing home care. The other part of that is doing something in advance. Like I said before, if someone's looking at care immediately, there's not a lot you can do because you didn't do it on time. And we hear that a lot. People say, oh, I should have come in here five years ago. And, well, we missed that. So let, let's look at some other strategies right now. But if you have the time, start putting things, giving up some control, maybe set up a trust. The other part of that, though, is, and you mentioned this in the, the question there, is your power of attorney and health care proxy. Because if somebody does need to do some planning that they didn't do before, you want a power of attorney that lets them do that. In other words, if it made sense to set up a trust, but now the parent is suffering from maybe early stages of Alzheimer's, where they're not going to need care in the near future, but there's certain things they can't do that they used to be able to. The power of attorney has to have specific gifting powers that lets somebody on their behalf set up a trust or um, maybe sell some assets or make gifts or take steps that the parent might have done for themselves, but now because of diminished capacity, they can't do any longer. So the advanced directives, the power of attorney, or even a, a living trust that you can make irrevocable at some point, those are the types of tools that having in place in advance let you do some more planning, give you a lot more flexibility, and kind of adapt to what life may throw at you down the road. I've got just one more question here that that uh, it's related to this. I, I think it's it, it's. Let me ask it, and then you can tell me if I need to <laughs> fix it. Uh, okay. How many? This is from Amy. How many years does it take for a living trust to become fully vested? My mother signed hers in 2007, and I'm wondering when those assets will be fully protected from Medicaid capture should she need to be placed in a nursing home. The, the time period, and for anyone taking notes out there, sort of a magic time period is 
uh, February of 2006, the rules changed quite a bit. If you did a, a trust before then, you're protected. If you did one after that, it's five years, 60 months from the date assets were put into the trust. So in Amy's example, if the trust was signed in 2007, that's one step. But the more important step is the date assets were put into that trust. So if that's the same time it was signed, so things were retitled from her mom's name to the trust name in 07, 60 months from the month following when things were done is when they're protected. Now you mentioned living trust too. It's important, and I, I think this is the case here. It's got to be irrevocable because if it's revocable, then any creditor, nursing home, Medicaid, whomever, can say, well, you can change it however you want, so change it to pay us. When it's irrevocable, it gives you the asset protection planning. But to answer the question, uh, 60 months from the transfer of the assets into the trust is the date that she wants to mark on her calendar. So sometime in 2012, those assets are going to be fine. Fantastic. Tim, uh, and, and to all of you, thank you for joining us for today's legal web chat with Tim Casserly of the Albany Law Firm of Burke & Casserly. If you have wills, trusts, estates, asset protection, or probate issues, you can reach Tim Casserly at 518-452-1961. For all of your other legal questions, check out albanylaw.tv, where you can find Albany attorneys and get answers on video about New York law. To listen to this and other web chats in their entirety, just go to albanylaw.tv and click on the chat link right on the homepage. I'm Martin Sweet for the Law TV. Thanks for joining us today, and a special thanks to Tim Casserly of Birkin Casserly for your time. Thank you, Martin. This legal web chat is for informational purposes only. Legal information is not the same as legal advice, which is the application of law to an individual's specific circumstances. None of the information provided in this web chat is legal advice. The Law TV LLC and our media partner, Young Broadcast Incorporated, through its subsidiary WTEN, do not represent and or endorse the accuracy or reliability of any information provided in this legal web chat. If you need advice about your particular situation or need legal representation, you can call the Burke and Casserly Law Firm at 518-452-1961. Thank you and good night.